Today, I want to step away from 2 Thessalonians just for this one week, uh, I, and I want to talk about life. And the reasons for that are obvious. Our nation is currently in a situation where we are debating and we are talking about and thinking about what life is and when life is valuable and ought to be protected. And so I want to take a look at this issue from a what does the Bible say perspective. There's a lot of scenarios and a lot of questions being asked and a lot of arguments and debates happening, but one of the things that, that we're not seeing enough of that specifically we as the church need to be asking is what does, what does God have to say about all of this? This is a difficult topic, of course, because we have people who have different views and different experiences, people who, have, who are coming at this uh, from, from different perspectives. Nonetheless, the Bible speaks clearly and we do well to listen. It was actually my desire to talk about this before uh, the Supreme Court decision got announced, and, and I had already at the beginning of the week uh, began preparations to preach this message this weekend. I was hoping to be out in front of uh, all of the emotion and some of the chaos that was uh, imminent and, and on its way, but God knew better. I didn't get out ahead of it, so here we are in the middle of it. And so I hope that all of us, no matter where we're coming from, will do God's word the service that it, that it deserves, and suspend as best we can our own, I don't want to say thoughts, but our own judgments, and just come with an open mind and say, what does the Bible really say? Let's begin there and begin to build our response and our reaction from there. As you probably know, since 1973, there's been a law, a federal law, that has prohibited any significant ban on abortion, known as Roe v. Wade. Almost 50 years, this law was in place. During that 50-year period, 57, now actually this is an old statistic, it's gone up a little bit, somewhere around 60 million babies have been legally aborted in the U.S. We also know that the ending of Roe v. Wade would not end abortion in the United States. It's important to keep in mind. The ending of Roe v. Wade simply pushes the issue back to the state level where now states can debate amongst themselves and can elect, can elect officials who represent the people of that state to make laws that are appropriate for each state. But what we want to talk about today is what does the word of God say. Let's start with this. I think it's important to start with a, a biblical view of human life, not just life in the womb, but what is human life? If you have the handout in front of you, you see the opportunity to fill in some blanks as we go along today. And the first question that I wanna try to answer is what's so unique about human beings? From a non-Christian or a secular point of view, it's difficult to make an argument that human beings occupy any special privilege or, or a special place amongst the rest of the universe. But from a biblical point of view, that's not the case. From a biblical point of view, we can see clearly and, and make the case that human life, this is what you'll see on the handout, 
Human life is unique among all of creation because God created us in his image. And he placed us over the animals and plants. Human life is unique among all of creation because God created us in his image and placed us over the animals and plants. I want to show you this from Scripture. I'm going to read a lot of Scripture today. I mean, we're always trying to be rooted in Scripture. Uh, if, you're, if you're new here, what we normally do is we go through books of the Bible, and we just go through, we pick a few verses, and then we do the next few verses. So we're always trying to preach and, and teach the Bible. But today, uh, specifically, I want to read a lot of Scripture because I want to make my case not from human reasoning, although there will be some of that, and you can, you can engage with that according to your will. But I mostly want to make my case from what the Word of God says. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth, and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you. For all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, Everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. So during the final day of God's creation, as he creates man in his own image, he puts him in charge of stewarding, even subduing. We are... As, as a human race, God's representatives on the earth among his creation tasked with caring for and cultivating this world that he has created. He gives us a place of authority over the other creatures, not to abuse them, but to cultivate them into the purpose for which he has created them. This is why human life is unique. God did not say to the fish, he did not say to dogs, he did not say to cats, definitely didn't say this to cats. God did not say to any other creature, cats are, they are shady, aren't they? They're so shady. He didn't say to any other part of his creation what he said to man. We are unique among God's creation. We are created in the image of God and tasked with the responsibility to rule over his creation. This is why, this is why, no, let me say it another way. In no other part of God's creation, in every other part of God's creation, he simply spoke things into existence. I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. God spoke and it existed. But when it comes to creating man, God actually gathers the dirt of the ground, forms out of the ground man, 
and he breathes his own breath into the lungs of man. And in no other point in God creating the universe did he do that. This is why man is unique because we are created in his image. So that's, that's where we have to start. We have to start with this understanding, this foundation of who we are in relationship to God and in relationship to his creation. Now, as we've talked about a lot lately, man is fallen, man is sinful. We do, we do not appropriately steward God's creation. We don't, we don't always fulfill this role uh, well because of the fall and because we are living in a state of brokenness today. And, and, and so that comes into play. You think, well, if, God's, if man's so special, why is he doing all these screwed up things? Well, that's why, because of sin. Sin has come into the world and marred God's creation. Nevertheless, mankind is unique. But what about, so what about human life? When does it begin? That is an important debate, isn't it? When does human life begin? Does human life begin at conception? Does human life begin at birth? Does human life begin somewhere in between? We're gonna have to come to some sort of conclusion. When does this this all-precious, all-valuable, created in the image of, of God life begin? may have noticed that the Bible is not written like some sort of encyclopedia or owner's manual where you can just go to the table of contents and say, and and go to the the section on when life begins. It's a story. It's progressive revelation. It's God making himself known. It's God revealing the, the truth throughout human history over a period of a couple of thousand years. And so we have to take the scripture and we have to look at it as a whole and say, what does the Bible say? I want to make the case. You can, I invite you to engage with this. I invite you to look at the scriptures for yourself. But I want to make the case that life begins in the womb and should be valued and protected at any stage of a pregnancy. Valued and protected at any stage of a pregnancy. Life begins in the womb and should be valued and protected at any stage of a pregnancy. This, I will make the case, is what God tells us. This is what, I I won't go into this a lot, this is what science confirms. I think it's also generally common sense that life begins in the womb. Nonetheless, human beings are sinful. We don't want God's truth. We want to create our own truth. So we've redefined pregnancy. We've redefined human life. But let's get to what the Bible says before I get too far into that. What does the Bible say about life in the womb? Let me give you lots of scripture to consider. And then the cumulative effect of what all of these mean. Exodus chapter 21, verse 22 and 25 You can flip around in your Bible if you want. Um, I'm going to jump around a lot to different places in the Bible, and so it might be good just to follow along on the screen. But please, by all means, if you want to try to get there, but I'm not going to wait every time we turn to a new passage of Scripture. I may not give you enough time to get there. 
That's just for the sake of time today. Exodus 21, 22 through 25 says, when men get in a fight and hit a pregnant woman so that her children are born prematurely but there is no injury, the one who hit her must be fined as the woman's husband demands from him and he must pay according to judicial assessment. If there is an injury, then you must give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, bruise for bruise, wound for wound. Now that's a complicated place to go, to start talking about life. This is Old Testament law given to Old Testament Israel, right? And there's, there's a lot to that. That's not, that does not mean that this is God's law for us today. I'm not, I'm not even discussing the, the penalty or the application of this law. What I wanna point to is this is one of the earlier places in scripture that begins to deal with the value of life within the womb. And what does it say? If, if men are in a fight and someone hits a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely but the baby's okay, then you treat it as if that man hit a woman and there was no further damage. He pays the penalty according to the damage he did to the woman. But if he hits that woman and she gives birth prematurely and there's injury to that child, that child carries the same level of protection as a child or a person that is already born. So God, in this instance, is giving us a glimpse into how he views life in the womb. Murder in the Old Testament is a capital offense, and the same punishment for harming a human being outside of the womb is applied to harm done to human beings still in the womb. That's the point I'm trying to make today. Not should we apply this you know, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, bruise for bruise, all of that. That's not the point. The point is that God is making a statement that this woman's child inside her womb is worthy of the same protection as human beings who have been born. Make sense? Psalm 139, 13 through 16. We're gonna put all of these together, okay? Psalm 139, 13 through 16. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous. And I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless and all my days were written in your book and plan before a single one of them began. What is the psalmist saying? The psalmist is referring to how intimately God was involved in his development inside the womb and not just involved in his development. Because that, that, that really doesn't sway the argument one way or another. Of course, God is involved in the development of a child inside the womb. But what is most significant is that the psalmist says, all my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God has a plan for this man before, even before, I, I, think, I think what it's pointing to here is even before conception, even before birth, for sure. So God is viewing this 
child inside the womb as a life that will be lived out according to his will and according to his purpose. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. At the very least, that has to mean before birth. God knew him, had a plan for him, and viewed him as a person. Life after birth, according to that, I'm, I'm, again, none of these are, uh, well, uh, maybe they are. I'm, I'm not trying to pretend that any one of these passages of Scripture is conclusive, but I do want to put them together. Life after birth is merely a continuation of the life that existed in the womb. That's the case of Ben Hur. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 says, The word of the Lord came to me. I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Before Jeremiah was born, he was known by God. He was even called by God to a specific ministry as a prophet to the nations. I chose you before I formed you in the womb. Is that is there mystery in that? Yes. How does uh, to to think that we are with our finite minds going to be under going to be able to understand how an infinite God works in creating life and choosing people for a specific purpose before they are even formed in the to think that we're going to be able to understand all of that is a little too ambitious. But what is clear here is that God knows him, has called him to a specific ministry to be a prophet to the nations. Again, God is affirming that life after birth is a continuation of the life that began prior to birth happening. Genesis 25, verses 21 through 24 says, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord was receptive to his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, conceived, but the children inside her struggled with each other. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When her time came to give birth, there were indeed twins in her womb. In Genesis 25, God not only sees these two babies as human beings, but he sees their potential of becoming eventual nations. He's not just looking to what is going to happen in their life. He's looking forward and seeing the generations that will come as a result of these two lives. Again, there's no distinction between the babies in the womb and the men and even nations that they will become later in life. God makes no distinction. Luke 1, 39 through 44 says, In those days Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside me. 
in Luke 1, at least two things are significant here. One, the in utero, John the Baptist, that's who, who we're talking about. This is when John the Baptist's mother and Jesus's mother are both pregnant at the same time. The in utero, John the Baptist is called a baby. And in, in the original language, in the Greek, that is the same term that would be used for a child after they are born, okay? So we say things like fetuses and, and stuff like that to indicate a distinction between a child in the womb and a child outside of the womb, and that's not incorrect or, or I don't even think improper, but just, just take note here. It's just one small thing. This baby in, inside her womb is referred to as a child in the same way that they would have referred to that child after birth. Two, the baby in the womb responds to Jesus's presence. Now you think, okay, Elizabeth is just, you know, you might say, I would never say, you might say pregnant women can be a little bit emotional. Again, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. You might say, she's just getting excited. Babies move. That doesn't, that, that, that's not indicative of some greater purpose for their life. They, they just move. But here we are. This is a biblical account. And you have to decide whether or not you trust the Bible enough to believe that what it says is true or not. If this is true, then, then what she is saying is that this child inside her womb has just responded that this child is not just randomly moving about in the womb, but in this specific case, this child responded to the presence of Jesus. These two things from this passage and everything else that we've looked at affirm what you'll see next in your handout in Scripture God always refers to and treats unborn babies as human beings, entitled to the same protection as those who have already been born. What does that mean for us? I'm not getting there yet. I'm just making the case that in the Bible, anytime, there, anytime the Bible is referring to an instance where there is a child inside of its mother's womb, the Bible is consistent. The Bible always treats that life inside the womb as the same as a life outside of the womb, okay? What does that mean for us? Well, we can debate that, but what's not, what's, what you can't debate is that that's what the Bible says consistently. You're like, well, you just picked some verses that you like. No, I didn't. Study the word for yourself. Don't take my, do not take my word for it. Study the Bible for yourself and see if, if you can find evidence that the Bible isn't consistent on this or that the Bible doesn't always treat life inside the womb of that. That's what I did. I didn't start with, I didn't start with the idea that I needed to preach a sermon that says this. I started with the idea many years ago, what does the Bible say? Because I had my own questions. I mean, there were, you know, Kim and I have lost a baby to miscarriage and, and you know, life has happened in my family, a lot of things have happened, and it makes you stop and go, well, what does all this mean? What is going on inside the womb? And so I came to the scriptures and honestly sought out the scriptures and said, what does the scripture, what do the scriptures say about life inside the womb? This is the conclusion I came to. I encourage you to do the same. 
Do not say, if you're, gonna, if you're gonna get into this conversation with somebody, do not say to them, well, my pastor said so. Your pastor's an idiot. Learn the word of God. Study the scriptures yourself and, and come to your convictions and your conclusions based on what the Bible says, not on what I say. This is my conviction. This is the conclusion I've come to. God always refers to and treats unborn babies as human beings entitled to the same protection as those who have already been born. He never makes a distinction between the two. Unborn babies are humans. Is there a lot of mystery in this? Yes. Does the Bible speak of babies inside the womb in other ways? No. Our culture, therefore, is involved in one of the most horrendous and despicable acts of evil ever carried out by mankind. In America America alone, roughly a million legal abortions occur every year. Sometimes it's higher, sometimes it's lower. The last couple years it's been lower. On average, approximately a million a year. That's over 3,000 a day. When a handful of school-aged children lose their lives because of the insanity of another human being and gun violence, we all appropriately mourn, seek justice, and seek out ways that we can better protect our children. Should we not do the same for the 3,000 children, on average, who are legally aborted every single day? That's like 9-11 every day of every year. That's more than two times the deaths caused by cancer, car accidents, and guns combined. Worldwide, it gets worse. Worldwide, there's somewhere around 40 million abortions every single year. Put that in perspective, depending on which estimates you go with, Hitler was responsible for the death of somewhere around 10 million people. And 70 years later, we still remember him as the most evil man of our time. And yet, every single year, more children are aborted in our world than Hitler ever dreamed of killing. That's like four Holocausts in World War II's a year. Every three months, we are reproducing the number of deaths brought about by Hitler in World War II every three months. And it goes on and on everywhere. So if you want to say that Christians are wrong for celebrating the overturning of Roe v. Wade. If you want to say that we're calloused and we don't care about the lives of women who have been violated, I'm not listening. I don't buy it. It's simply not true. Can you see the inconsistency and the absurdity of abortion? 
The Bible tells us it's wrong. Common sense tells us it's wrong. Yet mankind is sinful. So how are we going to respond? That's, that was the best I could do in, in about 20, 25 minutes to try to convince you of what the Bible says about life in the womb. If you remain unconvinced, I am more than happy to continue this conversation lovingly and peacefully. Uh, I've, I've, I've no desire to, to hate one another or to, to, to part ways over this issue. This is, this is what I believe the Bible teaches very clearly. I challenge you to, to prove me wrong if, if you disagree. If you do agree, then we have to answer the question, where do we go from here? How do we respond? As we said earlier, Roe v. Wade does not end abortion in the United States. It's worth celebrating the, the overturning of Roe v. Wade because Roe v. Wade has been this impenetrable fortress that has been used to justify restrictions on abortion or states that want to all-out ban abortion, and now it's out of the way. Pennsylvania is one of the states that is unlikely to make significant changes to its abortion laws. That means for us is that not much will change right around us. Some states have already enacted new laws banning abortion. What no state is doing, and this needs to be understood as you enter into the public debate, what no state is doing is refusing women health care. What no state is doing is forcing women to carry children that are going to put their lives at risk, the mother's life. What no state is, is doing is removing um, health care options that are appropriate for women who, are, who have pregnancies that are unviable. And I've seen this. I've seen lies posted on social media already saying the government doesn't care about women. The government wants women to die of unviable pregnancies. None of that is true. It's completely false. So how do we respond? We need to respond outwardly, and we need to respond inwardly. Outwardly, your local elections just became more important. The people who run this state just became of greater consequence to the cause of life. Outwardly, we need to continue to support pro-life ministries that are doing a number of things on this front. One, they're engaging with lawmakers to promote the, the passing of pro-life laws, but perhaps most significantly is they are reaching out to and lovingly caring for and providing for women who are in unwanted pregnancies or crisis pregnancies. One of the things you'll see on social media now is, boy, I hope all these Christians that are pro-life are ready to step up. Christians have been stepping up for the last 2,000 years. The majority of our hospitals are the result of Christian efforts. The, the, the majority of, of compassion ministries and services in our communities are the result of Christian effort. Christians, like myself and like many of you, have 
cried tears over abortion and we have opened our checkbooks and we have given of our time and we have made ourselves available and we have supported those who are in crises. We will continue to do so. We must be pro-life for all of life. We must be pro-life when that child is in the womb. and We must be pro-life after that child is born. We must be pro-life when we're dealing with mom. We must be pro-life when we're dealing with dad. We must be pro-life for all of life in all of life. That's what we'll do. Another response that you need to consider is the inward response. Inwardly, we are called to repentance. Are you guilty of sin in this area? Perhaps out of ignorance. Perhaps out of a hardened heart perhaps because you are wounded by the actions of someone else. The Bible calls us to repentance when we become aware of our sin. Men, have you been too complacent? Have you you failed to live up to the role that God has given you in his creation to love, to support, to make this world safe? for the women around us. I know for a fact there are women in this room who have had abortions. There always are. Have you turned to Jesus? As a woman, having an abortion will be one of the defining decisions of your life. And it will take you in one of two directions. It will take you into the direction of self-hatred and shame guilt will take you to the cross of Jesus where there is abundant mercy, forgiveness, and healing. We as a church are here to help you in that direction. We as a church are here to help you find the grace of Jesus. Marty, can you do me a favor? I just remembered I did not print off and bring up the um, Love Life House of Refuge statement on our website under About Us. Can you print that for me real quick? Thank you. I appreciate that, brother. What's that? No, just one for me to read. Thank you. Some of you have been living daily with the guilt of abortion. You have such a loving and merciful and compassionate Savior who does not even begin to hesitate to forgive you, but he wants to deal with you. He wants you to experience the gospel. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He came for us, guys. He came for us, sexual sinners. He came for us who have not valued life the way he values life. There's healing in his forgiveness. Jesus died, this is the last thing you see on the handout, Jesus died to pay the penalty for sin, including abortion. 
I just want to make that abundantly clear today. This is not the unforgivable sin. You are, I, I'll say this, I don't know if everybody, every, I'm just going to say, I'll just say it. You are no worse a sinner than me or anybody else in this room. And don't you dare let Satan convince you that you are. In addition to that, you don't need to justify yourself. You don't need to defend your action. You need the forgiveness of a Savior. That is our defense. What is, what is my defense for the ways that I've sinned against him? Jesus Christ crucified. That's the only defense you need. Indeed, it's the only defense that will work. Projecting your guilt and your shame and your self-hatred on other people will not bring you healing. Throwing yourself at the foot of the cross, folks. This is for men and women. I have a friend who I'd say probably daily, a male friend who, who, who beats himself up and belittles himself over the fact that at one point in his life he encouraged his girlfriend to have an abortion. It doesn't just affect women. It affects men. But no amount of justifying it, no amount of making it seem okay is going to bring healing. Only the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. We don't bring condemnation. We bring grace. We don't bring condemnation, but we do want to bring conviction and repentance so that you might receive life-giving grace from Jesus. Paul tells us in Romans <clears throat> excuse me, 6.23 that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, we don't fear honesty about our sin. The sooner we realize that we have a sin that needs to be forgiven, the sooner we begin the process of receiving that forgiveness and the healing that comes alongside of that. You need to know that God takes sinners and he makes them his children. Listen to what Romans 8 verses 1 through 4 says. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death for what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of a sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Jesus has already taken your guilt, the condemnation deserved for your sin and for mine on himself. You don't need to bear it any longer. So be forgiven, be cleansed, be made whole, come to him for mercy. What are we gonna do as a church? We have joined, uh, partnered with an organization called Love Life. It's a national pro-life ministry who has been asking churches to consider adopting what's called the House of Refuge Statement. It's now on our website under About Us. If you scroll down towards the bottom of the page, you'll see something that says like the House of Refuge Statement. And churches who agree to this statement are asked to post it publicly and to make it known. And I think it, 
it, it describes fairly well what we want our response as a church to be. So let me read it to you. Originally, I'd hoped to have it on the slides, but that didn't work out, and so I'm just going to read it. Please listen. The House of Refuge statement. Redemption Church is a house of refuge. This applies to everyone in this church or people you know that need a place of refuge. Here's what we believe. If you find yourself in an unplanned pregnancy, please know that being pregnant is not a sin, and the child you carry is not a punishment, it is a blessing. God is knitting this child in your womb. You may have made a sinful decision that led to this pregnancy, or you may have even been sinned against, but we want you to know that you are loved. We will do whatever it takes to help you carry and care for this precious child before and after birth. We can never support or encourage a woman to have an abortion because the child you carry is made in the image of God and is intrinsically valuable and loved by God. So you need to know how we will respond. Here's what we won't do. This church family will not gossip about you, shame you, or abandon you. This is a house of refuge. And we will not allow for the family of God to harm one another with words or actions contrary to the love of God as revealed in his word. Here's what we will do. We will do everything in our power to remove whatever obstacles stand in the way of you having this child. There are people in this church ready to mentor you, throw you a baby shower, and connect you with resources inside and outside of our church. We will also hold men accountable for living out their calling to provide and protect women and children. Finally, if you have ever had an abortion in your past, we want you to know that abortion is not an unforgivable sin. Whoever confesses and forsakes their sin finds mercy. If you have never gone through a post-abortion Bible study, we will be happy to connect you to one so that you can walk in complete healing and freedom. End of the statement. That's our commitment. Okay, we can... We can debate other things related to this issue, but as a church, this is where we're going. I'm asking, you to, I'm asking you to support that. I'm asking you to buy in. I'm asking you to refuse to gossip. I'm asking you to refuse, refuse to judge. I'm asking you to open your arms and say, hey, I'm here. I'm a part of this church. If there's something I can do, if there's some way that I can help, I'm available. That's what it means to follow Christ. In the near future, this, um, our commitment to this statement will be communicated on a national Love Life website where women who are in unplanned pregnancies will be referred to, and if any women from this area happen across that website, they may find Redemption Church saying, we are a house of refuge. We need to be a true house of refuge. If you see someone walking in this church who's in trouble, if you hear of somebody in this church who is in need, please respond immediately. Please respond with love and compassion. As women come to us, and I've already had one, as women come to us and say, I've had an abortion, and I want to receive post-abortion care, we need to be a safe place for people to say that. So be very mindful of your tone on social media. Be very mindful of the impact of the things that you are saying is that one of the challenges of, of preaching this message today is that I know there are people who disagree with much of what I've said, 
here. And I know there are people who agree with everything I've said, yet they do not, they do not express that with love and compassion. And we need to find ourselves being firm on what the Word of God says and being full of grace and compassion for those who are struggling. That's what it means to love life. Not just to love the life that is in the womb, but to love the life of the mom who, or the dad who is arguing with you and accusing you of things that just simply aren't true. To love life in that moment so this is where we're heading. This is what we want to do as a church. We want to be a house of refuge. We want to love life, all of life, in all of life. 